You are listening to the Content Academy podcast where we teach online businesses how to create raving fans with their content. So let's get to it. Yes, hello, and you're very welcome once again to the Content Academy podcast. I'm Phil McGrath, joined as always by Paul Carfrey. Paul, how are you? I'm very, very good, Phil. How are you? Again, I say joined as always. You missed this one. Yeah, I certainly did. There you go. Fights can get delayed. This, you know, this can happen. So, uh, having said that, I still really enjoyed this show as a listener. I have to say, uh, some great stuff there from yourself and Corey going back and forth. Um, so, I mean, as regards the one thing which I really, really like, looking at the content that you've actually already created and turning it into a book and obviously you guys spoke a lot at length about you know writing books as he's written a lot and there was a lot of information there for people who might be looking to start out and you know particularly taking podcasting and turning that into your first book which is something i thought was you know absolutely interesting and uh yeah i like that (laughs) yeah i mean Cory is a a, an author a speaker and you know he he's even a a ted has done a ted presentation this the kind of the kind of gravitas of the gentleman we had on today, and certainly uh, his concept on writing books was uh, was unique. Uh, but of course, there was other other strings to his bow, and you know it was interesting as well that when a guy who's published so much to hear him say that you know he had problems at the start that he wanted to polish. Oh, he it's incredible, yeah. He wanted to polish and edit stuff so much that he just couldn't pull the trigger, and um, which is a problem I think we've all suffered with somewhere down the line. So it just goes to show you, you know, done is better than uh, than perfect, huh? Yes, yeah, yeah. The, the Facebook mantra there from Mark Zuckerberg absolutely yep, does much go. better than perfect. And also, the other side of things is, you know, Corey, he started very, very late. He only started to get his, his uh, get his act together towards his, you know, the end of his 20s. So Yeah, read his first book at age 27, apparently. So there's plenty in there from Corey from how to get the most out of an interview. Um, he kind of spoke about some difficult interviewees that he had and how to get past all that and understand his concept on writing books, how to ro- how, how repurposing his previous content uh, turned into his first book and uh, plenty more in between so without going on too much here he is Corey Portier yes so as I said we have Corey on the line Corey how are you my man I am doing absolutely fantastic Phil how are you doing I'm good I'm good um getting a little bit late on this side of the world obviously uh we've a bit of a time difference to overcome so thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy day to come and speak to us um I suppose you might have noticed I slightly dodged your surname there. We had a wee conversation before we came on air about the pronunciation and I decided just to steer clear rather than offend anybody. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I probably didn't help when I said that I can't even pronounce my last name as good as and as well as other people can. So I probably made you a little more scared with it. Just a little bit, just a little bit. Um, Corey, as we said, is obviously from the speakerguy.com and um, I would strongly recommend everyone to go over there and have a look at Corey's site. But I suppose for people who perhaps aren't familiar with your work, Corey, you might just uh, give them a bit of background on where you started and uh, what you're up to these days. Well, absolutely, Phil. And, and I guess uh, it's kind of, um, I guess, you know, a long and a short answer. So I'll give you the, the let's call it the Reader's Digest version. Uh, that just hits the high levels and highlights, if you will. That's what we but, like. Perfect. Well, I mean, this is going to sound like I'm starting at the beginning, but trust me, uh, there's a reason for me jumping, starting here and jumping forward quickly. But I was raised by a single mother. And I always mention that. I mean, today that's more common than it was, you know, back when I was raised by a single mother, but which makes me feel old. But at the same time, <laughs> it's kind of significant because my mother really played a big and major part in guiding me into the person I am today and into leading by example. And I've written articles just dedicated to what I learned from my single mother. And so that was kind of important and significant in terms of my backstory, if you will. But then if I jump way you know, further ahead to, than that, uh, you know, I'm somebody who I think a lot of people now see some of the things I spend my time on and think, oh, you must have been born with some you know, exceptional talent in some area, mainly because, as you know, about the 10,000 hour rule. If you do something well over 10,000 hours, it looks a lot easier than it did when you started. And it makes it look like no effort goes into it when, in fact, a whole lot of effort went into it. So for me, I started... I'm still trying trying to hit the 10,000 hours in the golf course, but uh, I'll get there at some point. (laughs) Well, you know, and and I'm still working on it in many areas of my life. And, you know, I guess, you know, where, where I sort of started, and this is just sort of important to the backstory, 
And it kind of brings me up really quickly to where I am today. But when I started, I hadn't didn't read my first book until I was 27 years of age. I barely graduated high school to the tune of one teacher giving me uh, 49 plus one when a 50 was a pass for my last year of high school. In other words, if he wouldn't give me that 1%, I would have been held back and failed high school. Uh, so I almost didn't pass and complete high school. And I was tone deaf as far as music goes. I was terrified of speaking in public. And, you know, all this stuff is documented, which is great, Phil, because <clears throat> when I go back, I have a video of me performing stand-up comedy, for instance, and freezing and sweat rolling down my face. And so I have proof when people say, no, I don't believe that. I don't buy that, you know, you started <laughs> this way. And I have the proof of the barely graduating high school because, of course, I still have the report cards. You know, so I have those things. And I always talk about the first book I read at 27, which is How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I have witnesses who watch me read that book and go, wow, I just finished my first book and I was super excited. So that's kind of, you know, where I started. But then I guess if we, you know, jump way ahead from there, so it doesn't look like I'm all over the map, um, you know, if I kind of finish the dots on those starting points, you know, today I spend my time speaking uh, hundreds of times a year for clients. I ended up performing 700 shows in a stand-up capacity over the years. And I've now read an average of three to five books a month. And I spend my time interviewing, like you're doing as well, interviewing thought leaders and, and sharing that insight with clients and, and trying to get the message out for how people can go from point A, if you will, to point Z. So it's kind of a, been a, a full, I guess, circle of me starting with as somebody who didn't have any talent really apparent at all and was really kind of, in a lot of ways, what we would define as a, a failure, uh, you know, sadly, when I started out, but through a lot of trial and error, a lot of setbacks and a lot of mistakes and a lot of failures, uh, you know, today, I, like I say, I spend a lot of my time trying to teach other people how to get past those self-limiting beliefs and those setbacks and failures to get to the point where they are actually on what they feel is the path to their ultimate purpose. Wow. <laughs> there's a lot in there, Corey. Um, and I can only imagine that there's a hell of a lot more. We won't even know the half of um, that I'm certainly covering this podcast. Anyway, um, I mean, obviously the, uh, the Content Academy podcast very much focuses on content and you know, you've you've written seven books, I believe. There's an eighth on the way. Um, so I suppose we might just start and and look at, at the kind of writing process behind those books, if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I have to, I guess, you know, as you can probably already tell, just based on that mini intro, that I'm pretty full disclosure, Phil. And yeah. so I don't, you know, I don't mind sharing the backstory and and kind of the the trials and errors and pains, if you will. So I will say that I went into the book thing let's call it the easy way. And I'm not going to even, you know, tell people not to do this. So in other words, I don't think it was a bad thing. I did it the way I did. But for me, as I mentioned, I didn't read a book till I was 27. And what's funny is people said, did you always want to be a writer? And I said, yeah, I remember when I was 20 years old, I said, I wanted to write my first book. Ironically, I'd never read one. So I don't know what I thought I was going to write. But you know, like, how do you write something? You don't even know, you know, what the content would be in a book. Uh, but, you know, like everybody, we all have, like, I wrote poetry before that. I, I wrote music. Uh, so, you know, I, I had the concept down. And I had tried to read books I gave up on that I tapped out on. You know, I, I mean, I had four books that I tapped out on. So uh, what I did, though, for my first book to make it easy as somebody who had, you know, just barely started reading books was I actually had already been interviewing people for a newspaper that we had, a business publication. Uh, similar to Success Magazine, for those listeners who would be familiar with success, whereas we would actually maybe reach out and interview somebody like we're doing on this podcast today, and then I would actually share the story in written form in our publication. And so what I did was I simply uh, took that to the next level and picked some of the key people that we'd interviewed, and then picked some that I'd wanted to interview, and put and brought them together in a compilation book that was essentially called Conversations With, and it was about conversations with leaders. And so what I really did was I did a compilation book rather than having to start and write a 300-page book from scratch. And that was kind of the easy way in to actually writing my first book. And the irony, you know, somebody might say, well, does that mean he couldn't have written that first book? Well, the irony to me is that I had written, you know, probably by that point, 500 blogs. So I'd probably written the equivalent of three or four books. 
But in terms of putting that first book out, the easy way for me to jump in was to do this compilation book and to actually get that mini, wow, I did it, and to get that reward of having a book in print that you're holding in your hands. And that became a catalyst and a motivator to make it a lot easier for me to take action for the next one and the following one and so on. So how did I get the content? It's from interviews I was already doing or interviews I was about to do and turning it into short two and three page profiles on leaders and then compiling that into a book of short stories on leaders. See, I love that. I find that very, very interesting. And I mean, I know there's the kind of saying goes that, you know, everyone has a book in them. And, you know, that's probably true. I don't know how good my book would be, but I could probably squeeze a book out if I had to. But I like the fact that you kind of took it, broke it down into bite-sized chunks and were able to realize, and again, I hope I'm not doing you a disservice here, but we're able to realize that, you know what, I'm probably not going to have be able to sit down and write um, a Stephen King-style thriller or something along those lines. I can do this. This is this is something that that's realistic. It's tangible, and I I have a process in place that I know I can use to get me to my end goal. And I I just love the fact that you were able to realize that so early and go. This is how it's going to work for me. Um, and I mean the process obviously is something we'll go into go into um in in a little bit. But I mean in terms of that publication that you spoke of um that that you were publishing. I mean how did that come about? Well, you know and and. You know, I guess what's kind of interesting too, uh, Phil, is that I had written probably four, maybe five feature-length screenplays by the time I put my first book out. So the irony is, I had already written, you know, hundreds of pages of what you know what would be comparable to writing a book. Hmm. But my biggest issue, and this is probably important when it comes to content, and I've learned a lot since then, was I wanted to polish it and edit it so much that it never saw the day, light of day. Yeah, that was the whole thing. I couldn't pull the trigger and say, okay, now it's done. Mm. And so this way of doing it with a book that was short versions, then all of a sudden it was easier to polish little short stories and make them their own mini stories yeah, yeah. than to do, you know, let's say, a larger one. Well, where that probably came from was the publication that I had been doing for so long because that publication, I've kind of put it on hiatus uh, by my own choosing. But, you know, from the day we started until the day I put it on hiatus, we put it about 70 monthly issues. And that's, you know, 16 to sometimes as many as 28 page publication monthly. You know, that's, we're talking probably 3,000 articles that we put out within that publication. So no small feat. No, certainly not. And how, so how it came about, this is kind of a weird answer to that. Uh, Years before, I actually had went through a start your own business style course. And at the end of the course, we were going to be giving seed money to launch a business. And me and a business partner were looking at a clothing store slash CD store, you know, in a time whenever the CD stores were disappearing. And we didn't know until we were done of our business plan that it was going to be three to $400,000 of capital that would be required. And I think together we could probably maybe, you know, scrub our bank accounts together to maybe come up with maybe $1,000 if we were lucky. So we knew that wasn't going to happen. But now here we're sitting in a situation where we finished this course. We wanted to run our own business. They're offering us seed money. It was at $2,500 each. So it wasn't like, you know, take on the world money. Hmm. But it was one of those things where I don't know if I want to go work for somebody else now, now that I've saw the light of day, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So what happened was we decided, I said to him, well, look, we've been interviewing entrepreneurs to learn how to start up our own business. The program was really cool because it got you to get behind the minds of entrepreneurs to learn how to, you know, how to do it yourself, but also to get mentors and what have you. And so I said, well, we've been learning this stuff. Why don't we, there's got to be a way to share this with the public and actually make a living at it. So we looked at different opportunities and then ultimately we decided that maybe we could do a, a business publication. And I will say it had never been done in the little town I was from before or from at the time. So I don't know where we got our head around the idea that it could be done because I'd, I'd never seen it to that point in my life anywhere and especially not in this small town. So we did launch the publication. We put, pulled our money together a month after we did it. Uh, we What we found out is we couldn't charge for the publication like a subscription. So we found out we'd have to sell ads. My business partner, who I'm still buddies with to this day, realized pretty quickly selling ads wasn't for him. And uh, so what happened was he actually told me he wanted to leave the business and I had to buy him out a month after we started. And it really turned into a a pretty heavy debt for me because I had to take on his debt, my debt, and and actually get a loan to buy him out, even though we had just started the business. It was kind of a big mess. Mm. But the point is we ran it for, or I ran it for close to a year, and then I moved across the country. And so fast forward a bunch of years later, and I felt I'd never closed the door properly on that publication. 
So what happened was, you know, the, all these years later, after working in corporate Canada and learning what I'd learned in the years since, I thought, you know what? And I'd already gone full time as a speaker. So I had the time to do it because I could sort of, you know, even if I was working a lot of hours, I could set my own. And so I relaunched a similar publication. And then that publication brought me until I put it on the shelf as a, at least a hiatus a couple of years back. So how it all came together was we were kind of, it was a last minute, let's start this business to get the seed money. <laughs> and who would have known it would have turned into, you know, having a bigger legacy than I ever thought it would have. Wow. Certainly is. Um, it's impressive. All right. I mean, in terms of, um, obviously we know the, the, the first book that you put out was a collection of interviews. Um, I mean, in terms of putting those interviews together, obviously there's, it's not just a case of, you know, sitting down and going, okay, tell me everything, you know, obviously you've got to put together, you know, some key, key content that you want to cover during the course of those interviews. I mean, what was your process behind doing that? And how, how did you come up with the ideas that you, these are the key topics that I think I really need to try and extract from, from the interviews I'm doing. Well, I have to say part of it was a learn process. We talked about that 10,000 hour rule. Mm. And I will say that now, and, and we, I stopped keep, keeping count and I might have to go back and, you know, start counting since I last left off, but I was over 3,200 interviews at that point. Right. So, you know, you start adding up the hours when you think, think the interview, then you think of setting up the interview, uh, you know, milling through listening to the interview. I mean, we're pretty close to the 10,000 hour rule in interviews. So what I will say is early on, it was a lot of trial and error and, and realizing questions that didn't work. Hmm. Understanding personality types was a big part of it, Phil. So you ask somebody a question and you know, they're a television personality who maybe does monologues all the time and you think, okay, they're just going to go crazy with this question. And they say, yes. <laughs> and then you're like, whoa. And then you realize during that same interview that every one of their answers is going to be yes and no, because that's their personality. It's like, you know, they're a closed ended yeah, answer type yeah, person. Yeah. So all of a sudden you have to be able to now all of a sudden one question, you have to turn it into five. So as an example, I remember I interviewed, uh, and, and I'll explain, you know, how I kind of got around doing this, but uh, what happened was I remember one time I was interviewing this person who was a stand-up comic and I mentioned that I spent a lot of years failing in stand-up until I eventually had some sets that worked. And so this person, I asked them a question about stand-up and it just was a yes. And I didn't expect that. And then normally what I would, you know, what a person would do is just go, uh Oh, where do I go from here? But because I had known stand-up and spent a lot of time doing it, what I did was I said, okay, well, can you tell me about any hell gigs? Instead of saying, you know, did you ever have any hell gigs? Because I knew that would have just got another yes. Yeah, yeah. So And so a hell gig would be a gig that, you know, obviously went awry, didn't work, the mic didn't work, whatever it might be. And every so then, comedian is guaranteed to have had at least one. Exactly. And then you get them into the passion area, you know, because they're passionate about that. So, you know, it might be, can you tell me about any hell gigs you've had? And then let's say this person, and he did, went into the hell gig. Then I would say um, something like, did that turn into material? Can you tell me how you write your material? And all of a sudden, I'm five or six questions off that one question. Yeah. So that is what I guess you could say. That's how I learned to start um, elaborating in questions and, and expanding on questions where I wasn't getting the answers I needed. And then in other interviews, you might ask the one question and get the answer you needed. So I guess what I would say is it took a lot of trial and error and doing and practicing to get comfortable almost, if you will, improving during the interviews. So... That's kind of my, so my process sadly isn't as, you know, somebody might like to think, okay, I came up with 10 questions that I'm going to ask every interview ever I ever do, like inside the actor studio where they have the five questions when they end the show. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I came up with 10 questions and said that way all the time. And that can work. I mean, Entrepreneur on Fire, we had John on the show. I've been on his show and he uses a flow that, you know, he's used almost since day one that does work with, you know, your key questions. Mm. But for me, you know, I was always conversational style. So for me, I had to find a way that worked for me where I spent a lot of time doing a lot of different things in my life, you know, doing yoga, uh, you know, jumping out of a plane, doing stand up, playing music in clubs. And so what I did was I pulled from that since I was doing a lot of different things. I had a lot of areas to range from. And then also I would only bring people on typically that I was a fan of their work or a fan of the industry they were in. And so what happened was I was able to then expand into areas and ask questions into areas that made them feel like this guy really gives a crap about what I do for a living and what I spend my time doing. So I guess a part of it was research, part of it was knowing the industry and the person, and part of it was practicing so much that I was able to get flexible with asking questions and being comfortable if I didn't get the answer I want. Yeah, and I mean, that's uh, that's fantastic. I'm I mean, for, for our listeners listening in, they, they may not quite realize how important what you've just said is. I mean, there's a certain amount of 
I was going to say self-confidence, but it's more being comfortable in the surroundings that you're in, whether it's, you know, conducting an interview like that, is that you, you're, you're aware of the fact that it's not, you're not going to get the answers you want. Don't panic and settle in and obviously know the topic that you're speaking about so you can relate to the person. And also then, like you, you were able to say, can you tell me about a hell gig you've had? If you knew nothing about stand-up, you wouldn't be able to go down that route and then you're leading yourself, like you said, into other yes, no, answer. You know, you're not going to get anything of any real interest out of the interview. So it's being comfortable within that and having, I wouldn't say necessarily having a backup plan, but certainly know some of the key topics from the um from that uh, area of expertise that the person you're talking to is in because at least then you can relate to it and you know that you have a backup or a fallback set of questions that you can go to if it's not quite going your way and i, I think that is underrated because i think you're right i think a lot of people will just kind of go okay where do i go from here uh, i'm not really getting anything from this so i mean that's massive um i mean if we move it on i mean obviously your first book was um the collection of of uh, interviews that you did i mean can you tell us a little bit about the second book well <laughs> here's where it gets even more i guess almost comical uh, i can tell you about the the sort of the, you know the majority of my books uh, i can jump ahead quite a bit pretty quickly because what i did was that formula worked so well that I actually continued it, but I did it in a different way. So the first five books ended up becoming compilation books, but the difference from how I did it with the first one, let's call it the shortcut way, yep. into what I did with the future ones, is rather than just take from interviews I'd already done and people I already interviewed, I actually made it its own sort of quote-unquote beast, and I started approaching people, leaders, let's say, for the books to profile solely in the books and not with the publication, not in their show anywhere else. So I liked the format so well that I, I continued it because it worked well. And what really worked well is the books actually reached a much bigger audience because then I had all these leaders who were in the book who wanted to tell people, you got to check out the new book I'm in. And also I was able to then uh, reach much bigger markets because of the fact that the book had a larger appeal. So the first five books, and I've retired that format since, but the first five books were actually, uh, I'm going to call them almost like chicken soup for the souls. Uh, you know, short story format style books, but the difference being is that they were for business professionals and about leaders. And within those stories, you would learn secrets, traits, and strategy for how you could actually uh, grow your business or take your personal or professional career to the next level. And so the first five books was all within that conversation brand and style. But then what happened is then after that, I, I did go into a business fable was the next book. So that was a book uh, that was called Standing Ovations from Every Customer. And it was about how do you get uh, standing ovations in a customer service role. And so not surprisingly, maybe it was a business fable about a stand-up comic uh, teaching a business professional the four steps that the stand-up is doing to get a standing ovation in a comedy club that you can also apply to your business life. And so how you can get, for example, a promotion or a stand-up ov standing ovation in your work life. And then I actually went into a book called Share Your Message with the World which was, and, and I think this is really important, Phil, for your listeners when it comes to content, but it was actually, this is kind of a different approach for me too. It was a compilation book, but it was actually 27 co-authors and myself that were all brought together in the book. And what was really neat about that is we were able to pool our resources and our networks, and the book actually became an international bestseller in a matter of two weeks. And that was solely, in my opinion, because of the pool of all of our networks rather than just mine. And then just to finish the story, so people listening don't think, okay, he's only, let's say he's only written one book that's like a, you know, front to end type book. <laughs> the last book I put out was called Thriving, came out in June, we released it for a month as a free book, and it's about to go on Amazon and Kindle in another few weeks. But essentially, that was my own book is, is kind of the first section. And about what are the enlightened super achievers do to thrive in a busy and inefficient world. And then the second section, which is maybe the power of the book, is I actually went to our radio show, and, and you'll see a common theme here. Uh, we actually included 101 quotes by thought leaders like Jack Canfield, like T. Harv Acker, like John Gray, Shalene Johnson of Turbo Jam. They, we shared their insights in the back of the book, and of course then they were gracious enough in a lot of cases to actually want to share the book with their networks as well. And so the book was reached by thousands upon thousands in the first few weeks of its launch. So... That really is a summary of, of the first seven books. So you can see there's, you know, none of them were kind of a straight, here's your normal typical book. I mean, the business fable is not something that's a common book these days. 
The first five were, uh, you know, like I say, they were basically compilation of stories. They were all books, they're all stories by me, but compilation of stories sharing the uh, insights of thought leaders and their stories. And then a compilation book where I shared and pooled with a network of other people where I provided one chapter and 27 other co-authors provided each a chapter. And then finally, the thriving book was back more to what you would call a normal book, if you will. Excellent. And I mean, it's, it's really, it's really clever because I mean, again, the, most people can get that sense of overwhelm, um, especially when you're looking at, when you think a book, you're thinking, okay, you know, anything from 150, 300 pages and the amount of work that has to go in that. But I like, I like the way you've done it. Everything's been broken down into manageable bite-sized chunks. There's no sense of overwhelm there um, or panic. And it's that, okay, this is what we need to do. This is how we can get through it. Um, whether it's me on my own or, again, like you said, the other co-authors that you had on board. And it just makes it a little bit more realistic. Because I think when you set some goals for yourself, and I do believe you should set high goals, that sometimes, despite the fact that you've set them, you're kind of going, oh, I think I'm being a bit too ambitious here. Will I really get that far? And the minute that starts to happen, you're never going to get there. And that's, that's a big problem. Once you start doubting whether you can do it, I'm a firm believer that you won't. So I like the way you've broken that down. And I mean, in terms of writing those, I mean, whether it's the chapter you're writing or whether it's the full book you've got to do yourself. I mean, if we take Thriving, uh, for example, I mean, what was your process like for that? Did you have a set routine where every day I have a word count I have to hit or I'm just going to write for an hour every day? Or how did you kind of manage the whole writing for that? Well, you know, and Phil, I have to say, too, just to, to tag on for two seconds, and then I will jump into the process, uh, but, you know, that breaking it down into small chunks, the end result was for me, you know, I believe if you set small goals on the way to your big goal, so if you set, you know, you say, okay, i got to break it down, Here, here's the 10 steps I have to do to achieve this massive goal, and you set the small goals that are their own goals, and then you reward yourself when you achieve them, you start to get that taste for, I can actually do this. And it gives you the confidence to be able to tackle it. And also, you want those mini rewards, those little, you know, uh, shots, if you will, of dopamine, the natural high. Of, oh, my God, I finished a chapter or what have you. And so here's the end result to that. The end result is, you know, those books I mentioned, I mean, every one except for the last one was a hardcover traditional book in bookstores. And those, uh, you know, those books I started writing in 2010. So we're talking eight books because the next one's pretty well ready to hit the market. Eight books in five years. And previously, even though I've been, you know, a speaker for eight years, I'd never written one book. So that to me is the power of chunking it down to the small, you know, small, manageable, let's say, tasks or goals, if you will. So in terms of the, the process that I use when I write, it really varied. I mean, so what I typically would do, and this is not even maybe something I'd recommend, I think a better approach if you can have the discipline to do it would be to say I'm doing two pages a day and the funny part is every time I start in a new book that's what I say I'm going to do but it <laughs> never happens for me because I guess it's not in my nature and I'm trying to shift that but I mean I still haven't hit that stride yet but what yeah, I but listen do is, if, if, if the other process is working for you you know if it's not broke don't fix it yeah and, and I guess that's what I, I, I guess I've come around to is that every time I might set this little goal of I'm going to change the process but it, it's obviously working so I guess you know maybe my inner sense says, you know, I'm not going to let him change it because it is working. <laughs> but what I do essentially is I set a deadline and I set a firm goal and I set a deadline. And I find that I, sadly, and I don't think this is necessarily a good thing, but when we set a timeline, I find that whatever we're doing will grow or shrink to fit that almost like they say a goldfish will grow to the whatever size bowl you buy them. Uh, I think it's like the same idea that, you know, if I say I got a six months to do it, then and if I'm firm on that deadline, I'll probably hit the, I'll probably make it happen at, you know, five months and 28 days. Whereas if I would have said three months, I probably would have pushed harder and got it done in three months. So it's for better or worse because usually I'll set a, a realistic timeline and the book does get done on that timeline, but I probably could have done it quicker. So in terms of how, what the process looks like for me is I just hack away at it. So I actually block my times and this is a whole other side of my life and maybe a whole other strategy, but I'm big on time blocking because I do, you know, let's say, juggle a lot of different eggs. And I don't recommend that to people. Uh, I believe single tasking is far better than multitasking. But even though I know that inherently, I still multitask because I have multi passions that I, you know, playing music in clubs, doing stand up comedy, uh, you know, writing, speaking. I have so many different things that I'm juggling all the time. So what I actually do is I have to chunk it down in the times and say, you know, two o'clock to four o'clock, this is sales prospecting time. Uh, you know, this time to that time. This is, uh, let's say, writing music time. 
The only thing that always dictates and leads is my core passion. My main passion is speaking. So if a client books me, it, I work everything else around that. So I don't go, okay, well, I'm only going to speak this time. Yeah, what yeah. happens is when the client books me and I speak, let's say, on a Monday in the afternoon, then I typically can't do a booking that morning, but I'll already be ready for the talk. So that morning I might decide that's writing time. So what you know, how I've had to do it, Phil, is I've essentially blocked my time and just said, okay, I'm going to dedicate this amount of time per week to writing and then I have a little uh, thing that I check off to make sure I hit that goal throughout the week so I keep myself accountable yeah. and then I just make sure I do it. But I will say, you know, disciplining yourself to do that is almost as hard as disciplining yourself to work from home and not, you know, and not, for example, uh, you know, piss the day away for lack of a better term. So I won't say it's easy. I think it's probably a lot more easy and manageable if a person says I'm going to write three pages a day starting at seven in the morning and I'm going to turn it into a habit by doing it for 21 days straight. That's probably the much easier way and what I'd recommend. I just think that I maybe am, you know, I'm not one of those people that don't get that it would be a lot easier if I follow a pattern that makes sense. But for me, what I do is the only real discipline that I put to it is I set a deadline, a firm deadline for when I want to write it. And then I get down and take action. Uh, you know, I talk in, in Thriving in the last book about the law of action, in my opinion, being as important or more important as the law of attraction and it being the one thing that was left out of the movie The Secret. So the one thing I, would, I don't want to gloss over and pretend I don't do is I do take action. So if I say I want to write five pages or 10 pages or 15 pages this week because I have to have 150 pages written in six weeks, then I, what I do is I work my way, I reverse engineer it, work my way back to figure out how many pages it is a week, and then I actually take action and start typing to make sure it happens some way, shape, or form within that week. And if I'm at the last day of the week and I'm only five pages in then guess what that means i gotta buckle down and do five pages that day yeah and uh, do you know what i've been there with you i've set myself some fantastic goals and thought that's manageable we'll break it down and you know life happens sometimes and for it's you know it, it's not always going to go to plan and you're kind of going right that's it get the pot of coffee on this is going to take a while and you Absolutely. get through it but i mean in, in terms of obviously having set yourself a goal if we break it down say it's five pages a day whatever it might have worked out for you Sometimes when you sit down to write, it doesn't always go to plan. As in, you know, the old writer's block starts to kick in the the course of the uh, the blank page. Any methods you've come up with over the, over the over your time to uh, combat that? <laughs> okay, so here's where I may have a listener to dislike me when I say this. Um, Don't tell me you've not... never had writer's block. No, I'm not even going to let you do that if that's where you're going. Okay, so here's the here's the honest <laughs> answer: whether you're going to buy it or not. Uh, with music, I've had writer's block. Okay. So and when I say writer's block, I think I view it differently as some people. Some people are saying, okay, I sit down and nothing comes out. So that's never happened to me in my life. But what has happened is like music. I can use that example. I'll sit down and what I'm writing is crap. So something comes out and I can write something and it's a song, but it's a song I know would never go anywhere and it's yeah. crap. It's just, it's just like, it's like la 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 and laugh, you know, dandelions and, and rainbows. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, it's not usable in any way shape or but form see, I've, I've no problem with that i mean i actually think that's really good because i think a lot of people the problem they get especially around writer's block is they look at it and they kind of they start typing and they might get you know a line or two in no that's rubbish and they'll delete it okay let's try that again and they sit and they think okay let's try that no that's rubbish and they delete it again and by the third attempt they're like oh my god i don't know what to write this is all rubbish i can't put this in the page they don't just keep writing. I mean, that's one thing I found a way of getting through with it. If it's a case that you're sitting in front of the, of the computer or maybe it's a pen and paper if you're going old school and it's what's coming out isn't quite what you want, keep going because you will eventually get something out of that that you can work with and, and maybe extract from that rubbish that might turn out to be, be something really good. So within, within, you know, 12, 13, 15 pages of crap, there could be one good page in there that could spawn a whole series of books. It's just, if you keep going, eventually I think your brain kind of goes, oh God, he's actually serious about this. We have to do something. This is rubbish. Let's uh, let's do something here and uh, make at least try and make them look good and uh, get something worthwhile that's worth reading out on the page, you know? Absolutely. And you know what, Phil? What I have to add as far as you know, because I want, I want it to be, you know, I want it to be full disclosure is, so to me, that's my form of writer's block is that it's not, you know, what's coming out is not what I know I could put out. Mm. And so for, even when I think of writing like the written word, if I'm sitting down to work on a book or what have you, how I view it or how it comes out for me. And so this is my writer's block, if you will. I, I can't really ever think of a time where I've sat down and nothing will come out. But what I can say 
is there's times that, so my answer would be to write my way through it. So there's times I've written crap and I just keep on writing crap. But what there is, I do run into is times where I'm not feeling the energy at all. And I would actually be doing myself a disservice. Maybe I wouldn't be, but I feel like I'd be doing myself a disservice to sit there. So there's times when crap comes out and let's say music and I just keep on writing until something comes out yeah. or I'll keep writing until, okay, now I've written for two hours. It's all been crap. That's fine. Tomorrow I'll start fresh again. I've done that. But I've also had, and this may be what I would consider writer's block for me, times whenever my energy won't let me stay there. Yeah, in other words, yeah. it's like, oh, I feel, I feel gross of sitting in front of this computer and keep on typing. Like it just, I have such a bad energy. It's almost like I get tired. Like I'm, I'm getting tired sitting in front of the computer and I've only been there in three minutes. But yeah, stuff's coming out. But my energy inside is not that the energy level it should be. And where my energy level is pretty high always, and nine, you know, a lot of times when I sit down, it does come out. I almost feel like I don't want to force it because it's been so good to me, even if it means I'm channeling it somewhere else. I don't <laughs> want to force it that one time. You know, maybe the crap times that I'm writing is actually me, and maybe the, all the other times are channeling. doesn't matter to me, and I don't know the reason or why, but what I do know is that uh, I either force myself through it and just keep on writing crap until uh, you know I've decided that's my session for the day, or if it's a time where everything in my body is telling me, Corey, you need to walk away from this computer or this guitar, or if I was writing stand-up material, whatever it might be, then I walk away. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I haven't run into that writer's block where, you know, you're typing and you're going, okay, the ice cream store. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. I can't even type anymore. My fingers <laughs> won't let me type. I have, or, or some people that have said they just sat there and looked at a screen and couldn't even write one word. I've never had that. I don't know what that is, but I do know I've had times where I basically could write, you know, Billy runs down the, runs down the street and falls over in his bike, you know, and just <laughs> yeah, writing yeah, like yeah. that. And there's nothing to it. There's no substance. There's no nothing. That would be my writer's block. So right, my, okay. I guess that was a long tangent, but the answer is I write my way through it. Yeah, uh, and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, obviously everyone's different and people will find certain things that will work well for them that may not work for others. I mean, I've spoke before. Um, I think it was on the podcast interview with Sam Norberg where we're talking about procrastinating, where if I'm in front of the computer and there's either pure rubbish coming out or I'm just not in that mood to be sitting there writing, I will actually get up and go and clean. I will do the dishes or I will take out the trash or I'll grab a hoover and start, you know, vacuuming the the front room or whatever it might be. And I find that that my brain kind of goes, well, we can clean or we can <laughs> sit down and write. Let's go back to writing because we really don't like cleaning. And somehow it seems to work for me. I'm not sure, but it, it, it works. But like I said, what works for me may not work for everyone else. And I mean, you kind of you kind of tipped upon your writing comedy, and it it's something that uh, I I would have a, an interest in. I mean, in terms of doing that, and I mean, I think I, I, everyone will have a lot of respect for stand-up comics because you really are putting yourself up there to uh, to be completely destroyed. I suppose is the is the way of looking at it. Um, in terms of writing the content, even for that, how does your how do you come up with the ideas, and how do you 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 test them? I mean. Is, is there a process you have for kind of, well, you know, I'm walking, you walk down the street, you see something and go, that could be funny. I'll take a little note of that. And you might sit down later on and kind of flesh it out a little bit more. Or what way do you like to do that? Well, that, you know, that's a, a great question. And I struggled with that for many years. And, you know, one thing I would add on to, you know, my last question, which actually applies to comedy writing as well. So maybe it's answers, you know, both mm. is that practice is a big part of it. So I, you know, I said write my way through it, but we talked about the 10,000 hour rule. Yeah. And I believe that one of the things we overlook is that by writing your way through it, you're actually adding to your hours of practice. And so another way we talked about creating content that a person can do their practice without realizing they're practicing is write a blog every day, write a quote on Facebook that inspires other people, you know, or, or uh, write something about something that just happened to you when you're walking down the street on Facebook that, you know, can bring a smile to somebody else's face. You know, those to me are also examples of your writing and you're getting more experience writing and you're getting more time in as a yeah, writer. I mean, it's funny you should say that. I mean, in an interview we also did with uh, David Gilner, the episode number escapes me. He's an Irish playwright. Um, he's written a number of plays. In fact, and his first feature film has had the option has been bought. That's going into production in 2016, I believe. And he does something similar. And it's all about positivity. And every day he has a quote that he puts out on Facebook about something that's happening to him or a strange phone call he might get. And, and he does that every day. So even to him, if he's not writing a screenplay or, or writing a book, he's writing little short pieces on social media to keep what he kind of says is keeping his, uh, his pen finely tuned. <laughs> I, I love that. And, you know, there's, there's an, I mean, Phil, I have to say, I'm seeing something with comics that, 
that actually I would recommend if somebody wanted to get into writing either, you know, funny, let's say writing the funny or writing comedy, even if they're talking about writing, you know, when it comes to copywriting, but they want to write something that's clever and funny. To me, we have a better, let's say, testing ground than I ever had when I started stand-up comedy, which is, of course, the uh, world of Facebook and LinkedIn, social media. Mm. I mean, you can put an observation on Facebook and put it out there and see how many people say, oh, my God, I'm so glad you pointed that out. And, oh, that's hilarious, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But I, what I will say, so to answer your question, though, for me, what I did whenever I was you know, starting out and, and early in the years is, for me, I was an observation, not an observational style comic like Jerry Seinfeld, but where I got my materials from observation. So I would look at something and it would just strike me as, wow, that's unique. And, you know, then I would go, what's funny about that? What's not funny about that? So I'll give you an example that, you know, just happened recently. And I've been kind of on a break from comedy, but I've been taking notes of all these observations, you know, and, and testing them, you know, on my girlfriend, on friends as I go. So, I mean, that's how I test it. I'll actually just say it to somebody. It, what, one thing people uh, don't realize is stand-up comedy. You can't tell a joke that you tell to 10 of your friends in a room at a, you know, at a party. Well, yeah, I, mean, I was, I was just about to ask you that. Sorry to cut across you. Um, it's funny you should say that because I remember it's it's a good few years back. I did an interview with Ed Bourne. Um, I'm not sure he's a comedian, stand-up comedian. He's Irish. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Um, and I did I did an interview with him, and we were talking about how he how he comes up with his material and how he tests it out. And I remember the one thing he said to me was, "Don't try it on your friends." <laughs> and I said, "Why is that?" And he went, "Because your friends know you." automatically they say i know this guy he's not funny <laughs> absolutely and, and you know what i mean and that's true so what i did was i actually maybe took it to another level is that i figured out why it wasn't working on my friends or why it was and so what i found is that there's the one part is that they're either going to laugh at you because they always laugh at you and find you funny or they're more critical and they don't laugh at you but it's not as good a reading as an audience that doesn't know you but what I would, what, but the bigger problem was, is the way you were telling a story. So, you know, you'd say, um, oh my God, you won't believe what Mike did last week. Well, what does Mike, you know, what does Mike have to do with an audience who doesn't, doesn't know who Mike is? Mm. And you don't have the time at a stand up stage to explain Mike's backstory so they understand why it's funny that Mike did that. So I would discover that you'd have to take an eight minute joke about Mike or an eight minute story about Mike down to the one thing that is the actual punchline, which most people don't want to do. Like they, they don't realize that because it works eight minutes, in front of your buddies at a party, it won't work that way on stage. Yeah. And so what I did was to be able to start testing material is, I, and there was two ways I did it. So one, I would share with my friends, but I would share it in the way I would share, share it on the stand-up stage. And what my experience was is that that was the time they were purely honest. Like in other words, if even if they knew Mike, I was leaving out the Mike story and all that stuff about Mike and all the funny little nuances I would share with them and just tell it as a straight, pure stand-up joke. And if they were basically like almost like the Jerry Seinfeld, that's gold, Jerry, then it was gold. <laughs> but if but if it died with them and they were my friends and would laugh normally at anything, then I knew it's definitely not going to work at a comedy club. So I kind of took a different perspective on the joke. But, you know, to give you an example, and I don't, this one's not really, you know, R-rated. It's a pretty basic joke. But, you know, I, I was at a, um, I do a lot of traveling around hotels and stuff as a speaker. And I was coming out of my, my hotel room. And I saw on one side of the door knobs, normally it would say, say, do not disturb. And I think it's Spanish. I'm not even sure. I never even looked this up. But on the other side, it says, uh, no moleste. And so right into my head, of course, <laughs> I went to the idea of, oh, yeah, my God. I'm with you on that one straight away. <laughs> yeah. You see where I'm going with that. I right? know so exactly right where you're going. Like, Uh-oh. I didn't turn that side of the sign. No moleste. So did I leave the, you know, did I let them know that they can, you know, did I let them know that moleste is okay? And, you know, then I started going to the idea of, you know, this isn't something I read about on TripAdvisor. You know, so like and I turned it into this whole bit on that. But basically it built just from me spotting that sign and just the word and saying, now that's funny because of the fact that you're actually asleep while you're in a room and you might have the sign turned in a way that doesn't tell them that they can't do this. So so that was where that bit started. But then what so now the second part of it is how do I test the material? Well, I'm lucky as a speaker that I get an audience that's not going to laugh at vulgar material and it's really not going to go over well in the corporate audience. Mm. So it, you have to be clean funny for corporate audience. So what I discovered is if I could make funny work in a corporate audience and learn how to work a corporate audience in a clean way, then I could always make it dirtier for yeah. a nightclub audience. So I like that. that's I like what it. I did. Yeah. I guess I tested it that way. And it answered, I guess, the question of how do I write that material? Well, it's observation. If, 
If you really pay more attention to being in the present moment and what's happening around you, you'll find more material and content than you'll probably ever know what to do with, as long as you know how to then position it into a story. Beautiful. And again, I mean, we've had we've had a couple of, of, of interviews where where you know storytelling has come up time and time again. And again, uh, Sam Norberg's getting a real mention here tonight. Actually, I think it was <laughs> Sam actually who said it. Who said, uh, you know, Disney are greater telling stories. That's how they make so much money. <laughs> Absolutely. I just. I just was uh, like last week I was in Orlando and I was at uh, downtown Disney and earlier this year I was at the, I did the four parks and stuff and you walk through that, you know, downtown Disney and there's stories being told every 10 steps. Mm. It's amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, Corey, we're getting on in time. I'm conscious that I don't want to hold on to you for much longer. Um, I have two questions. Actually, I'm going to, I tell a lie. I have three. (laughs) Okay. Across um, all your writing that you do, um, whether it's preparing your speeches, whether uh, it's writing a book, or whether it's coming up with some stand-up, is there any software that you're currently using that you think everyone should be using that you know you really swear by and couldn't do without the likes of an Evernote or Scrivener or one of those? <laughs> so here's the unsexy answer, you know, because I know you know almost everybody is is uh, you know has. That, not almost everybody, but a lot of people have that great software that they're using. Or Tell me, tell me you're using pen and paper. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. For me, I mix old school with new school. So I'm not, you know, I don't want anybody to think, okay, this guy you know, doesn't know what a smartphone is. You know, because I mean, I'm using, you know, email money transfers and PayPal for payments. And I mean, we don't even, I don't even do check payments really at all anymore. So I mean, I'm, I use the technology that works for me, but then there's other technology that for me, I find... I don't know. It's it's it, it doesn't work as well for me. So example is, I use if I'm writing notes. For example, I'm on a plane. I don't use pen and paper. I'll actually put it into my cell phone. And but what the funny part is, I just use notes. So that's yeah. my point is, I don't use any any app or anything. I just use notes. And then when it comes to my journal, when it comes to my day timer, I start with a hardcore pen and paper approach because first of all, I've lost. I've had you know the backup not you know not take care of itself. Yeah, uh, from a digital perspective, and I've run into the problem of having weeks and weeks of stuff uh, in your you know digital day timer, and it falls to pieces, or your computer goes down. And even though now we have clouds and backups and that, I mean, I've had this scenario where it's went down, and I know what that feels like. So I start from pen and paper, and then I transfer it over to Google Calendars. But that's as is you know as hardcore as I get. So my easy answer would be I mix old school with new school, and a lot of that involves pen and paper for me. Yeah, no, and I'm exactly the same. That's why I was saying, tell me pen and paper, because uh, Paul, Paul will be, uh, will be very amused because you're not the first person to come back because he kind of gives me a bit of stick that, you know, in, in the, the modern age that we're in and all the technology that I have, <laughs> I still go back to pen and paper time and time again. He's like, you know, you can do that on OneNote or you can you do that on on uh, on various other bits that you have already on your phone. I'm like, yeah, I know, but I just like to sit down and write. And he's like, so Phil, oh, okay. can I also add in a, a psychological reason for why what we're doing works so well and has worked since the beginning of time? Go there's, ahead. There's, there's a reason. And, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I'm, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, this has been proven. I mean, you can Google studies on this. But whenever you take a pen and paper and you have something written down in your day timer, let's say as an example or as on your to-do list, and you put it as an A priority, however you use your system, and you put a line through that, that actually releases dopamine and endorphins. And so what that means is you get a natural high. By the way, uh, when we get che- when we get emails, when that thing happens, we get the same natural high. But anyway, you get a natural high when you strike that off your list. So when you write, take the dog to the vet, and then the, you know a day later you strike that off your list. But you, I mean, don't erase it because you you lose the whole point of having that natural high. But striking that off, being able to go through the action of striking it off, but also seeing these things struck off your list, they say it actually release, releases dopamine and endorphins. And so we're getting a natural high every time we do that, and it gives us that extra confidence we need, an extra boost to keep going and tackling more and more tasks. So, so what you're telling me is I'm a dope fiend. <laughs> you, you know what? I guess we could say if the shoe fits, as long as the fact that we're talking about is it's clean dopamine, you know, clean dope. So, it's, but it's a, it's the same natural high we get from exercising. And so yeah, so I mean, to me, that's so I back it up and say, you know what? There's a scientific reason why I like using pen to paper still, and I. You know, I'm happy to not jump onto the point where it's digital and it just goes poof and, you know, gets rid of that task. And it, I forgot that I ever did it. And I don't get that little moment of, yay, look at me. I accomplished something in my life. Excellent. Which leads me to two questions out. Um, okay. 
this new book of yours that's coming out, um, the eighth book in uh, in Corey's sequence, when can we get our hands on that and where? This way for listeners to get it, I mean, it's, it's free, so why not, uh, is for the first month, that's the launch period. That's the time when it will be free. We did the exact same with Thriving. So when I say this, this isn't like you know me saying, oh, it'll be free and then changing the rules. Mm-hmm. So we did this with Thriving. We're doing the exact same and lightens the follow-up book. Uh, what they can do, what people can do listening that say, I want to grab the book or be among the first to get it automatically without even have to think about the release date. Uh, if they're listening before that date, they can go to thisisthebook.com. It's a pretty easy website. Thisisthebook.com. Excellent. And it'll ask for, what's well, that? We'll pop that in the show notes. Okay. And then the code they need, there's, it asks for a code, Ooh. is best you ever. So it's simply best you ever, all lowercase, all one word, where it asks for code. And it literally, you just fill out, I think it's like two little blanks or three blanks. And what happens is you get it added to our newsletter tribe, which also means we have a video series, a training series coming out, which is completely free as well. They'll, people that jump onto the tribe will get that as well. And what's, uh, what's really uh, cool about that is, you know, somebody could say, well, I might not want to be in the tribe after I get the book and after I get the video series. Well, that's cool too. Just opt out, you know, a second later. I mean, it's, it's very that, painless. That's what, that's what the unsubscribe button is for. Exactly. But, but the process for me, it's not that I'm saying, okay, I want to have their email address. It's just that obviously that's the easiest way to manage the system. Yeah, but I at the same time, we have, a, we have a tribe where we deliver free content every, you know, usually weekly, but at the, at the very least monthly anyway. So if people want to stay in for that, that's, you know, bonus good for them. Uh, if they you know want to get the free stuff and jump right back out, hey, bonus, I'm happy to at least have given them some content and information that they can use at that point in their life. Fantastic. Um, yeah, we'll make sure we have a link to all that in the show notes um, so you can head on over there and check them out after this. And my final question is the same. I ask everyone, if anyone wants to drop you a tweet or get you on Facebook, uh, or where, where can we get you online to say hello and thank you for sharing your information? Well, I would say probably the easiest answer to that, Phil, is I'll, I'll say the hub. And so even though I said that speakerguy.com is my you know speaking-related website, but the hub for everything, if you will, is thepassioncure.com. So thepassioncure.com. And if listeners go there, what will happen is uh, along the top, they'll see all the different social media links where they can you know click and then connect with me and their preferred link, if you will, because some people like Facebook more than LinkedIn and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then also on that same page, though, so they can listen to episodes of our show. They can uh, grab a copy of one of the books. They can watch my TED video there if they want for free. Uh, you know, almost, pretty 90, 90% of, I guess I'll say 99% of what's on there is free. Uh, that's where my, my blog is regularly as well, my main blog uh, these days. So thepassioncure.com will basically bring them to where they can connect with me in almost every format that, that I'm involved in. Well, that is fantastic. Again, all those links will be in the show notes, so uh, you don't have to go scurrying off for a pen. Corey, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show this evening. Uh, Thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to come and chat to us, and hopefully um, we might check back in with you in a while and we'll we'll, we'll chat again. Absolutely, Phil. I'd love to call it a a to-be-continued and, you know, us try to connect down the road and see if we can make some magic happen, and at the same time, maybe I'll even though we're, you know, we're on your show right now, maybe I'll, I'll put it out there that it'd be great to maybe have you and or Paul onto the, our show at some point as well and maybe do some overlap and, and bring some of that magic onto our show as well. I'm sure we can arrange something. I am never one to shy away from an interview. Awesome. Sounds perfect to me. Thanks so much, Phil. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again, Curry. All the best. Yes, yeah, so that was Curry Portier from thespeakerguide.com. Uh, Paul, I know you weren't present for that one, but uh, I have to say, even without you there, I really, really enjoyed that. You enjoyed it a bit more, did you? Unless <laughs> I say a little bit more. No, it was just, it was enjoyable. It was different, yeah. No, yeah. He was a great guest, actually, and uh, in fairness, you, you you know, the lack of a third voice wasn't noticed because he was, uh, you know, sharing so much information and, and you guys were talking so fluidly. It was a joy to hear. Um, a lot of great stuff in there. Um, the fact he turned his his podcast interviews into a book, I found very very interesting. Yeah, I mean, ironically, as he said, he hadn't hadn't read his first book all the way through till he was twenty seven. Um, but yet he'd always wanted to write a book, which was the irony about it. Um, but the fact that yeah, he was able to turn his podcast interviews into a book kind of helped him chunk it down and really just get into it and get it done that way which is certainly something that uh i don't know do you know anyone else who does some interviews paul they might be able to turn into some books 
I I think I do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> chunk it down. Chunk it down, Phil. Yeah. Um, um, and of I, course, he says about single tasking. Um, you know, it's one task at a time. He said he, he could multitask, but it's single tasking is how how he prefers to do it, and it certainly helps him get through his to do list. Yeah, and like that makes sense as well. It's so very, it's so very very easy to just you know look at your you know look at my wonder list of tasks I need to do, and then I've got sub I've got different places, and that then my email opens up, then someone talks to me, my phone rings, all of a sudden I'm focused, and I might be doing a document, and I'm doing like six or seven different things badly. So the fact of actually focusing on one thing, getting it done, a lot to be said for that. And I know that's something that you you speak about a lot. You know, the one thing is such. Yeah. I know that's maybe a, a bigger uh, bigger picture um, kind of idea, especially with um, with Greg's book there that I'm referencing, Greg Keon. Um, however, it, you know, the small things are just as important. So without the small things, there is no big one thing. So I do like that that piece of advice there. Yeah. Um, and I suppose sometimes it's people's, you know, the way they get distracted, they don't actually get anything done. So there's no, you know, there's no end game. There's no follow through. There's no output. And and again, you know, that's that's mediocrity, really. So you want to avoid that at all costs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I thought it was interesting. Sorry to cut across no, it as no, well. On, he was yeah. kind of saying about uh, about just going back to kind of chunking things down that he gives himself small rewards as he goes through each section or each part that he does. And as he works his way through, he gets a little re- reward, whether it's, you know, he's written the two pages he set out to write or whatever it might be. But he says, if you set yourself small goals and reward yourself, you will get there. And I just thought it was interesting that, you know, if you're writing a book or maybe it's a, a series of blog articles that you want to get done, set yourself the goals of getting done in whatever your time frame might be. But give yourself the reward afterwards to be able to step away from the computer, step out, you know, whether it's a round of golf, go for a drink, you know, spend time with the family, whatever it yeah. might be. But I thought it was an interesting concept that it's kind of carrot and stick effort with himself, which uh, I really, really liked. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll probably go a step further. I, I was writing an article recently for the site, and you know, it was probably two and a half thousand, three thousand words, uh, and really, so I, you know, I got up and I'd start, and I was, I had my, I suppose, I had my my outline of what I wanted to write about, you know. So I was like, okay, but like, I haven't had any breakfast. I haven't done. I was like. No, I'm, I'm going to start. So I basically went, right, I'm going to do my first thousand words. Then I'm going to have coffee and a grapefruit. Uh, and I have to say, that kind of just, just got me there, kept me focused, went and did that, stepped away, uh, and then went back to it. And then obviously I had plans then to go out after that. So I said, right, I'm going to get this done by such a time, and then I'm going to go out. And uh, so it doesn't necessarily have to be around the golf, you know, sometimes even just being, you know, that coffee you know, going, right, well, I'm going to get a chunk of work done, then I'm going to treat myself to a coffee, you know, so, um, you know, I know you like your golf, Phil, you're you're a man for, for being out on the on the course, uh, but I suppose just putting things in perspective as well, sometimes that can also push you on uh, as well. So one thing which jumped out at me as well was he spoke a little, well, I say both of you spoke about paying attention to the world around you and him being a comedian and a stand-up comic, that's something which I suppose is very, very important to that art form, and, and he's kind of looking at translating it into his, his other businesses. And this yeah, is something that, which... that kind of went to the no moleste sign in the hotel, which I thought was very funny. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Corey said, if you really pay more attention in being in the present moment, you'll have more material and more content that you'll know what to do with. And it's just, given where we are as a society, I suppose, at the moment, that everyone's constantly glued to their smartphones and earphones in and not really paying attention to what's going on around them a lot of that can get lost and i thought it was quite interesting from Corey to say that that you know by simply taking a step back and being in the moment and watching what's going on around you it can span plenty of material as he has for a stand-up but also content ideas for your business going forward yeah, absolutely, you know, and, and actually it reminds me of, I suppose, one of my idols, Alex Ferguson, or Sir Alex Ferguson, as I should say. Um, obviously, he did, he did a book called Leading There a couple of years ago, uh, and he did it with uh, Sir Michael Morowitz, uh, and he spoke a lot about actually paying attention, how when he was managing a successful team, you know, he's a big thing is he says, open your eyes, use them. A lot of the time, the information you need is actually all around you. But you just have to be smart enough to look at it and actually take it in. Uh, and again, I suppose it overlaps there. Another person incredibly successful, so I suppose you can't really compare that to, to the norm as such. Uh, but having said that, something a lot of us 
you know, as we get a little bit older, we kind of lose that kind of childlike mentality to actually take in the world around us. So, um, again, nice to kind of hear something which can change your perspective for the better on these podcasts, which is what they're all about. And and I, I really enjoy being pleasantly surprised by, by things like that, which just kind of reinforce, actually, yeah, I've heard that somewhere else before. That makes sense. I could do that now. So, um, yeah, brilliant. So fair play to you, Phil. I really enjoyed that podcast. Oh, thank you very um, much. I'm glad it meets your uh, such high standards. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Well, listen, I think we'll, uh, on that high praise from yourself, we'll uh, wrap it up there. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us in the Content Academy podcast. And don't forget to get your hands on our editorial calendar template. You can head over to content.academy. You'll see it there at the bottom of the homepage. Or if you're currently on the podcast page, just take a look to your right there. You'll see the editorial calendar image. Click on that, leave your name and email address, and it'll be in your inbox very, very shortly.